But today we get to finish up the series. We get to put a cap on the letter. The final chapter of this letter is Galatians chapter 6. And the Apostle Paul finishes up this amazing book in a powerful way. In fact, there's a couple sections here that may be familiar to you. Uh, First of all, in verse 1, he says this. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, he says, or you may also be tempted. He says, if somebody's caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit, that's what he just finished up talking about in chapter 5, right? He says, if you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. We're going to keep up with the Spirit. He says, those of you who are in that category, chances are at some point in time in your church, somebody's going to blow it, right? Somebody in your church is going to miss it. Somebody's going to fall. Somebody's going to sin. And he says, when that person sins, those of you who are in a good place with God, those of you who have the fruit of the Spirit evidenced in your life because the Holy Spirit is at work in you and shining through you, he says, you have the responsibility to bring restoration to that person. Isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, correct that person? He doesn't say, rebuke that person? The goal when someone sins in the church is restoration. Amen? Shouldn't that always be the goal? The goal when somebody blows it, when one of us misses it, and yes, we will, right? When some of us steps out of God's best, when one of us steps into unrighteousness, the vision, the goal, the purpose is to bring restoration and to bring it gently. HGTV has made an entire industry, right, on on showing the process of restoration, primarily of homes, right? Like, I don't know if any of you guys are into these shows, but I know many who are addicted to them. Uh, And it's like, to me, they're all the same. It's like, yeah, we get it. Shiplap, like, that's the thing, right? You need a backsplash, like... You've seen one, you've seen them all, but that's just me. Other people, man, they got to see them all. Uh, And and there's something about the power of restoration. There's something about taking something that's old, something that's run down, something that, that isn't at its best anymore, and bringing love and bringing tenderness and bringing some blood, sweat, and tears and pouring it into that thing and making it shine again. Making it new again, isn't there? There's something in us, I think, that is drawn to a restoration story, even the restoration of a physical building. Because I think in in our hearts, God has planted restoration. God has planted a desire to see the old things made new, to see dead things brought back to life. That's who our God is. And there's a reason those stories resonate so deeply in us. And so God has called us as believers to be people of restoration. When I was in middle school, attended a church in Seattle, Washington, the church where I, I really got serious about my faith when I, when I first entered into youth group. And remember, I was probably about seventh grade when one of the high school girls in our youth group got pregnant. And I remember the, the, the whispers around the church, as this girl had made a mistake. Her, her boyfriend, by the way, also attended the church. Uh, and, and so there were these whispers. And I remember one of the whispers was there were a number of parents 
who thought that the youth pastor needed to publicly address this. That the youth pastor needed to get up and basically say, look, this is wrong, this is sin, this should not have happened. And thank God my youth pastor didn't follow that advice. Thank God my youth pastor didn't get up there and tell the world what a, what a mistake this girl had made. The reality was we all knew she made a mistake. We didn't have to put her on blast. We, we didn't have to, to use her sin to make an example for the rest of us not to end up in the same place, right? Like, we, we, we could tell for ourselves this wasn't a great situation. Nobody was watching her situation and saying, hey, I want to do that, right? And, and so I'm grateful for, for a youth pastor who said, no, we're going to restore her gently. Doesn't mean we're not going to have some hard conversations. Doesn't mean we're not going to sit down and, and, and go over some things and say, man, there's, here's, first of all, you need to repent, First of all, we need to get this right with God before we do anything else, right? Like, that's gentle restoration. Parading somebody's sin in front of the rest of the church and pointing at it is not gentle restoration. Amen? Amen. That's not the way that the Bible has outlined for us to do it. Are we supposed to stand against it? Yes. Are we supposed to deal with it? Yes. But there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. By the way, I never heard one parent say, we need to get up there and talk about how he shouldn't have got her pregnant. It's a little double standard, isn't it? A little hypocritical that the girl who got pregnant is the one who's supposed to be paraded and, and challenged while the, the one who got her pregnant kind of just slides by. As if pregnancy was the sin. Pregnancy is not the sin, guys. Sex outside of marriage is the sin, Right? And so when we, when we choose just to make an example out of the one who gets pregnant, out of the one who chooses to keep the baby and not no, go quietly and get the abortion, what message are we sending? So Paul says in Galatians 6 that you who are right with God, you who are in step with the Spirit, when somebody sins, and they will, we got to restore them gently. Doesn't mean we, we turn away and look the other way at sin. Doesn't mean we ignore it. Doesn't mean we high-five it and celebrate it. But we restore them gently. Amen? A few things to write down if you're taking notes. First of all, the church should walk in the power of restoration. We should. The church should walk in the power of restoration. I believe there's power in restoration. Amen? There's something there. Secondly, a core value for us here at City Church, many of you know this, but I, I want to hit it every chance we get. You're free to struggle here. It's a good point for us to remind of ourselves of that. You're free to struggle here. You don't have to have it all together. In other words, you don't have to go quietly get the abortion so nobody knows that you sinned, right? Like, you, you can have the sin openly. You can have the issue openly, and we're going to walk through it with you towards restoration. Don't feel that you've got to keep your sin hidden. Don't think you have to keep it secret. Don't think that you've got to keep it on the low. Like, you're, you're, you're free to struggle here, but understand what struggle means, Struggle doesn't mean we, we celebrate sin. Struggle doesn't mean, well, hey, this is just my identity. This is the way that I am, and you have to accept it. Struggle means, look, I know that there's some things in me that aren't things that God wants for me, and I'm going to struggle through them and pursue God's best, even though I'm not always going to get it right. Amen? So the third thing to write down there is that doesn't mean you're free to just walk in the old self here. It means that, that we've all got a piece of the old self who's here, and we're pursuing the new self. We're pursuing the restoration of the spirit. We're believing God for a better tomorrow, even when we recognize today isn't always where we want it to be. Amen? 
It's things that, that we believe and hold dear here at City Church. Verse 2. It says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. There's a togetherness component of this thing that oftentimes our American culture misses. One of the things that I think the American church misses the most is, is the corporate aspect of church because we're such an individual culture. We're, we're such a me-first culture. We're such a culture that is self-reliant, that is private, that's behind closed doors. And, and God has called us to a togetherness. And so Paul says, I want you to carry one another's burdens. In other words, I'm not just going to let you think that you just got to do you on your own. Man, we're doing this together. We're in this together. When one of us struggles, we're going to struggle through it together. It's the vision. But look at what he says. He says, in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. What does he mean that you fulfill the law of Christ? What he's saying is this. What did Jesus do? Jesus carried my burden. Right? Jesus carried a cross. A cross wasn't his burden. He wasn't a sinner. He didn't miss God. He didn't fall short of God's glory. He did everything right, and yet he carried a cross in my place to die for me. Why? Because he's a God who carries our burdens. And so when we carry one another's burdens, what are we doing? We're just being like Jesus. We're following in Jesus' example. So carry one another's burdens. Verse 3, he says, if anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. You ever know somebody who thought they were something when they weren't? When I was about four years old, I saw the karate kid. And when I say I saw the karate kid, let me back up. I saw part of the karate kid uh, because when Ralph Macchio got his face, but face bloodied by the Cobra Kai, I cried. Uh, and so my mom pulled me out of the Karate Kid, and we went next door and watched the end of the Jungle Book while the rest of the family finished the Karate Kid. So I saw a piece of the Karate Kid. Then we were over at somebody's house, and, and we watched the rest of the Karate Kid on VHS a few months later, right? Back in the day when it took like six months for a video to come out after the movie was in theaters. Now it's like three weeks later. Uh, downloaded it, right? Uh, but... but in those days, it took a little while. So by the time I was five, I had seen probably the whole Karate Kid. And that meant that I knew karate. Right? I mean, wasn't that what it was? It was a karate instructional video. Uh, and so I decided I knew karate. So I had friends who actually took karate. Right? Who actually knew karate. And I did not and still don't. Uh, and they said, I know karate. And I said, oh, I know karate too. I've seen the Karate Kid. Uh, I thought I was something, and I wasn't, right? I wasn't even a yellow belt, right? That's the first one, I think. Uh, I, I, I was a nothing. I was a white belt, right? Like, I was a, a pre-white belt, whatever the first one is. Like, I was the opposite of a black belt, as far away as you could get. I thought I was something, and I wasn't. Now, thank God I never actually got into hand-to-hand -hand combat based on that false confidence, like, nobody jumped me, and I thought, okay, I got this. I know karate. Thank God. I, 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 he spared me from that until I grew up enough to realize, no, I don't actually know karate, just because I watched Ralph Macchio get beat up or do a crane kick, right? Like, I, I didn't have that thing down. Uh, and so Paul says, look, there's some people out there who think they're something, but they're not. 
What are they doing? They're deceiving themselves. What was it? I was deceived. Nobody else deceived me. Nobody told me, hey, you watched this movie, now you know karate. That was self-deception. I grabbed a hold of that all on my own. Aren't we good at deceiving ourselves? Aren't we good at, at making ourselves think something about ourselves that just isn't true? All of us have blind spots in life, don't we? And that's where the church, man, what do we do? We carry each other's burdens. We speak life into each other. And when we see somebody stepping out of what they really are, we, we lovingly and gently restore them back to what God's called them to be. Verse 4, he says, each one should test their own actions. They can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else, for each one should carry their own load. So, so he says, look, stop the comparing. Stop the, hey, I'm trying to be better than so-and-so, or I'm worse than this person, right? Like, we're so caught up in comparison. We're so caught up in, in looking at, well, well, I do, I serve more than this person does, so I got it together, or I don't have as good of a strong of a gift as this person does, so something's missing. Paul says, quit looking side by side. Quit looking horizontally. That's not the standard. They're not the one to measure yourself against. What are you measuring yourself against? You're measuring yourself against the call of God on your life. What is your potential? What is your purpose? What has God asked you to do? Quit looking around and thinking that somehow the other people in your life are your standard. They're not. The standard is the word of God, the person of Jesus, and the call of God, his voice in your life. But then he says something really interesting at the end. It almost seems like he contradicts something he says earlier, doesn't he? He says, for each one should carry their own load. Now, didn't he just say carry each other's burdens? What, what is he trying to get to here? I think this is what Paul's trying to say. See, Jesus in the book of Matthew makes an amazing declaration. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. He says this. It's an amazing, amazing promise. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Everybody say rest. Doesn't that word just feel good? Some of us need some rest today, don't we? Not just physical rest. Some of us need a nap. Uh, so, some of us need a day off. Thank God for Labor Day. Some of us don't get that day off. I understand that. Some of us need some deep rest, some spiritual rest, some emotional rest, some, some rest in our soul. And Jesus says, come to me if you're weary. Come to me if you're heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. And he says this. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Why? For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So when Paul says to carry your own load, I think he's referring back to this. That, that the load that we're supposed to carry is the call of Jesus to take up his yoke. Because his yoke is easy, his burden is light, and when we carry that yoke... That means we can carry not just our own, but we can help somebody else too. I can handle what God's given me. I can handle what God has called for me because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. In fact, it's so easy and so light that now I'm freed up to, to shoulder some responsibility for somebody else as well. And when we all get to that place where, where, where we're there with God, we're walking in the spirit, we're close to God, and now we're able to not carry our own physical earthly burden because that can be hard. And that can be heavy. But when we've allowed that to be taken off of us, when we've cast our cares because he cares for us, now our yoke is easy, our burden is light, and now we're freed up to make a difference for somebody else as well. 
That's the place God wants us to be. Now, the reality is all of us are imperfect, flawed human beings, and there's going to be a season, there's going to be a point where that burden gets a little heavy for us, where it gets a little hard for us. And that's why God's designed the church, so that we can carry each other's burdens, so we can walk through the challenges and the difficulties of life that the majority of the time we're freed up and we're loose and we're light and it's easy and we can help others, but sometimes we hit that difficult season and we're surrounded by others who can help us through it as well. Amen? Amen. Verse 5, excuse me, verse 6. He says, nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. God, Paul's going to take five verses and, and, and dig into a metaphor. And this metaphor is something that, that comes from nature. It's something that's hinted at many times in the Old Testament. But Paul's going to make it more explicit here in Galatians chapter 6 than, than we've ever seen anywhere else in Scripture up to this point. And it's interesting, he puts it in the context of, hey, take care of the ones who take care of you. That, that, that there's a responsibility for us as believers to invest in the people who are investing in us. He says, look, if somebody's instructing you, make sure that you're helping them, that you're uh, sharing all good things with your instructor. He's talking about giving. He's talking about making sure that the church is taken care of. So he says this, verse 7, he says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. What's so interesting about this is Paul introduces the natural law of sowing and reaping, the law of seed time and harvest. As he points to the physical world, which, by the way, I think everything that's in the physical is to teach us something about the spiritual. I think God created the spiritual world to reflect, excuse me, created the natural world to reflect the spiritual world. And so he says, look, there's this thing you all know about, you're familiar with. They were an agrarian society. They were people who were planting and harvesting and growing their own stuff and taking care of themselves. He says, you know, when you plant something, that's what you're going to pick, right? That's what you're going to receive from it. And so he says, in the same way, in the context of church, in the context of gathering, we're all called to sow. We're all called to be a part of this. And, and so there's... Some implications here. First thing I want you to write down is this, is how we live matters. How we live matters. We're in the greatest dissertation the Apostle Paul gives, in my opinion, in the entirety of his letters in the New Testament, of the 12 or 13 letters that he wrote. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews. I don't think Paul did. Some people think he did. Regardless, we know he wrote quite a few of them. But of these letters, to me, this is the, the greatest explanation in Galatians of grace. The greatest message about not getting caught up in self-righteousness, not getting caught up in works, not getting caught up in, 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 in thinking that those things make us right with God because they don't. He addresses it head on. He deals with religion head on. He, he says this stuff won't get you to Jesus. But in the context of this, he says, look, don't misunderstand me. Don't get it twisted. How you live does matter, right? We, we saw in Galatians 5, he says, don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, but use it to be a blessing to others, to build others up, right? So he's saying, look, remember, you will reap what you sow. You will reap what you sow. And he says the, the things that we sow are going to come back to us. Now, thankfully, there's also grace, 
So we don't reap only what we sow. See what I'm saying? We do reap what we sow, but we don't reap only what we sow. We also reap what Jesus sowed. You, You follow me? We reap what we sow, so the things that I do for the good and for the bad will come back to me. But because of grace, I don't just reap what I sow, I also reap what Jesus sowed. So I'm already ahead. I'm already blessed. I'm already in a good spot. But Paul says, you don't just reap what Jesus sowed, you also reap what you sow. It will come back to you. And and he says it pretty harshly, doesn't he? He says, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying because of grace you can just go do whatever and it doesn't matter and you're going to be blessed regardless. Yes, there is a blessing on your life because of grace. But if you want the greatest blessings, if you want God's best in your life, you are going to reap what you sow. Now, I've taught on this before in the past, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we're working through it verse by verse. But there's, there's three implications of this statement that I think we need to have. The first one is this. We always reap what we sow. We always reap what we sow. In other words, if we go plant potatoes, we don't reap oranges, right? The, the thing that we put in the ground is what comes back to us. We understand this. I don't sow chocolate and harvest coffee. It doesn't work that way, right? Amazing as that might be, different beans, it's both dark, but not the same, right? Like you plant chocolate, you're going to grow chocolate. And it's like, how do I get some chocolate seed? That sounds awesome. Uh, sign me up for that. But you always reap what you sow. So the, the area that you're sowing in is what you're always going to reap from. If you sow joy and encouragement into other people's lives, what's going to happen? When you need some encouragement, when you're discouraged, the law of God is you are going to reap encouragement and joy. You will reap what you sow. Now, the flip is also true. If you sow sow discouragement, what are you going to reap? You're going to reap discouragement. See, I think this applies to all aspects of life. It is a spiritual law based on a natural law, but contextually here, Paul's actually talking about financial money inside the church. He says, you reap what you sow. So if you sow financially into God's kingdom, how are you going to reap? You're going to reap financially in this life. You always reap what you sow. Secondly, You always reap what you sow. Number two, you always reap more than you sow. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that a crazy principle that if I take one kernel of corn and put it in the ground, what do I reap? I reap back, I think it's four to six ears of corn off of one stalk. And each of those ears of corn has like 480 kernels of corn on it. Right? The math is insane. One little kernel of corn brings all this corn back. In fact, it's been said that you can count the, ap- the seeds in an apple, but you can't count the apples in the seed, right? How many apples can that one seed then reproduce? Like how many can grow from that one thing? How much can happen eternally when we invest in God's kingdom? We don't know. We don't know what he can do with that. It's always greater than what we sow, though. How much blessing can he bring back in our life? His promise is more than we got room for. That's a lot. If we'll honor him, if we'll be willing and obedient, you always 
reap what you sow. You always reap more than you sow. There's a third one coming, uh, but I want to say this, and then we're going to read another verse before we get to the third one. Choose your soil wisely. Choose your soil wisely. What are you putting your seed into? Are you investing in the right things? And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about time. I'm talking about people. I'm talking about your heart. What are you investing in? What are you sowing in? What matters to you? What are you demonstrating with your time, with your talent, with your treasure, that these are the things that are worth investing in? Choose your soil wisely because you only got so much seed right all of us has a specific amount of seed and we're each allowed to do something with that seed with that day with that relationship with that opportunity choose your soil wisely verse 9 he says this he says so let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up he says look sometimes Farming is tiresome, right? Sometimes gardening is a pain in the butt, and it's like, I put so much time into this thing, and nothing is happening, and that defines my life in a garden, right? Like, I don't have the green thumb. Nothing grows for me. But he says, don't grow weary in doing good. Keep pulling the weeds. Keep watering that thing. Keep making sure there's sunlight on it. Keep protecting it from pests. Keep letting that thing grow because in the right time, in the proper time, in due time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. The third thing to write down is this. You always reap later than you sow. This is the one we don't like, right? Like, we like that we reap what we sow. It's all right. Because at least we know, man, if I put this seed in the ground, this is what's going to come up. I'm not just guessing and hoping that something will show up. We love that we reap more than we sow. That's a great thing. Man, that's, that's a beautiful thing. This is the hard one. We always reap later than we sow. I can't go home today and take a watermelon seed and put it in the backyard and harvest watermelons tomorrow. Watermelon's awesome, isn't it? Praise Jesus for watermelon. It's a great, great thing. Mind of God conceived a watermelon. He's a good God. Right? But I can't plant that watermelon seed and expect watermelons tomorrow. It's not the way that it works. It certainly doesn't work that I go home today and find watermelons in my backyard because God knew I was going to plant a seed tomorrow. Right? I don't reap before I sow. I always reap later than I sow. And when it comes to the spiritual, we don't always know the time span. When it comes to the natural, most of the time we can say, hey, you plant this seed from three months, this is going to happen. In six months, this is going to happen. We've nailed it down to a science. People have figured that stuff out. If you do this, 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 and this, here's the formula. But God will not allow us to define him by a formula. Right? So you always reap later than you sow. And this is where faith comes in. We want to give to God today and go home, and tomorrow when the mail comes, there's a check, right? Like we want to believe that, man, if we just do this one thing, that everything's going to come together, and, and, and man, there's going to be extra money to show up in our account. And most of the time, it doesn't work that way. Every once in a while, it does. And it's awesome, and we celebrate when that happens. But most of the time, the law of seed time and harvest is you're going to reap later than you sow. But it doesn't mean you're not reaping. See, the challenge for us is we don't always connect the harvest 
to the seed, right? Because we don't know how long it took. We don't know what seed it was. We don't see those things. So all of this has to be done by faith. This is what God says. I trust him and I believe him. Even though on this side of heaven, I may not always understand where this blessing came from or how this thing transpired or what God's plan is to meet this need. I trust that if I will be faithful to sow the right seed, if I will be faithful to choose good soil and invest my time, my talent, and my treasure in his kingdom and the place that he's called me to do it, if I'll be willing and obedient, the harvest will show up in my life. That was a really good place for an amen. 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 Right? We always reap what we sow. We always reap more than we sow. We always reap later than we sow. We got to hustle. We got nine verses left, and I got like three minutes, so let's go. Verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. We are called to be a blessing to our city. We are called to be a blessing to everybody, but there is a special responsibility for us to take care of those in the family of God. Now, this is the, the, the number one place for us to invest, the number one place for us to make sure that we, we take care of one another. Why do we do good? We do it for God's glory. We do it because it's the right thing to do, but we also do good because we know that it's going to come back to us. Verse 11. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Paul typically used what's called an amanuensis. An amanuensis was, was a scribe. Paul would talk, and somebody else would write down his letter, uh, but he would close his letters in his own hand. He would write it himself, and he says, see what large letters I use. Uh, the Bible scholars have some different theories about this. The most common is this, that Paul probably had bad eyesight. Uh, and so he had to write big in order to see it. This was before contacts that I get to wear up here every day, right? It was before glasses. Uh, he didn't have it, the, those medical advantages, and so he had to write it big. So, so really what's probably happening is Paul's kind of laughing at himself a little bit. He's probably mocking himself a little bit here, but he says, look, this, this is me. This isn't me just telling somebody else what to write down. This is from me. This is my own hand. Verse 12, he says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross. So Paul brings it back to the very beginning of Galatians, to the whole reason why he started. He said, like, I'm writing this last section in my hand, and I'm going to make this personal. I want to make sure you know this is directly from me. These people who are calling you back to the Jewish faith, who are saying Jesus and self-righteousness, Jesus and ritual, Jesus and something else, what are they ultimately doing? They're just trying to avoid persecution themselves. Why? Because there was a group in Jerusalem, in Judea, the, the region in south, southern Israel where Jerusalem was. There was a group of Jewish nationalists who were very, very prominent at this point. They wanted, they wanted Israel to be free from the Roman Empire. And part of their movement, their nationalist movement, was, hey, everybody's got to be like us. And so this pressure had even gotten all the way up to Turkey all the way up to Galatia, all the way to the Jews in that part of the world, they felt this pressure that we've got to make everybody like us. And so they were bringing that into the church. And so as Paul says, look, instead of receiving what Jesus has done for them and being free from this, they're worried about what somebody else thinks. And that's why they're trying to get everybody to follow their traditions, to follow their customs. Verse 13, not even those who are circumcised keep the law, just like we already saw. Right? That, that nobody keeps it completely. Nobody lives up to it fully. So he's saying not even those who are circumcised keep the law, that they want you to be circumcised, that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. 
He says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anybody ever had reason to boast in their own righteousness, it was probably Paul. Paul did some amazing things for the glory of God, right? Like if, like if we were going to compare, if we were going to rank Paul's accomplishments versus the accomplishments of everybody in city church, I'm afraid Paul might win, right? Like, like this guy had an amazing resume. This guy did some incredible things, but he says, look, I'm not going to boast in what I've done. What am I going to boast in? I'm going to boast in the cross of Jesus. The God of the universe died in my place, and that's the only thing I ever need to boast about. That's where I derive value. That's where I derive significance because of what he has done for me. I'm going to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So he says, the world is dead to me. There's a, a, a group back in the late 90s called Cademan's Call. And they had a song called This World. And the line was, this world has nothing for me. And this world has everything. Right? All that I could want. But nothing that I need. The world is crucified to me. It's dead to me. It's lost its hold on me. It's lost its significance because I've discovered something greater. Because the cross of Jesus is all and everything to me. The world has been crucified to me. I've been crucified to the world. Remember Galatians 5.24. Last week we saw those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So we are crucified to the flesh. We are crucified to the world. And the world is crucified to us. It's dead. Four more verses. Verse 15. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. But what counts is the new creation. He says circumcision was just an outward symbol. There wasn't any power in it. Circumcision of the heart. Where you give your heart to God. And you allow God to start cutting stuff off of there that doesn't belong that means something. That's significant. You see, circumcision was just a natural way to demonstrate what was coming on the inside. And this is what God was coming to do, to, to circumcise, to cut away that which did not belong. That's the new creation, and that is something, and it counts. Verse 16, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. What does he mean by the Israel of God? He means all of us who have now been adopted into his family, who are spiritual Israelites. Man, he's saying, this is for you. Verse 17, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. He's saying, I'm not going to deal with this circumcision nonsense anymore. These people think that somehow what they've done to their body makes them right with God. He says, I'll show you some scars of following Jesus. We don't know how far into his ministry career this was, so we don't know exactly everything Paul had experienced by now, but we know at least by this point he's been put in prison for the cause of Christ. We know at least by this point he has been whipped for the cause of Christ, and we know at least by this point he has been stoned for the cause of Christ. Potentially many other things he's experienced. We know that he was shipwrecked. We know he was bitten by a snake. We know he went through a lot of stuff on his missionary journeys. We know at least those three things have happened by this point. He says, look, I've got some marks for the cause of Christ. You think that, that circumcision means something? I'll show you what it really means to follow God. Again, not boasting in himself, boasting in the cross, but saying, let's stop with this comparison nonsense because if we're going to do comparison, I'm going to win. But comparison's not where it's at. Christ is where it's at. He closes with this, verse 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, Brothers and sisters, 
Amen. Paul closes this book, this letter, significantly different than he closes most of his letters. Most of his letters he closes with shout-outs. Most of his letters he, he recognizes specific people and says, hey, tell so-and-so this and so-and-so this, and man, I miss so-and-so, and I'm so excited to see so-and-so. And he doesn't get into any of that personal stuff. He closes with this. He says, it's all about grace. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've fallen into something less than grace. You've fallen into works. I'm calling you back to grace. So this is my prayer for you. This is my prayer for City Church, that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with our spirit. Brothers and sisters, amen. Would you pray with me, church? Father God, I thank you so much for the word of God. I thank you for the book of Galatians, for this powerful letter that you wrote through this man, Paul. God, to call us back to freedom. God, I pray for all of us that this past 10 weeks, whatever we were here for, whatever we were able to partake in, God, that that we would receive that freedom, that we would walk in that freedom. God, freedom from self-righteousness, freedom from works, freedom from feeling we gotta earn something from you. God, but freedom from unrighteousness as well. Freedom from disobedience. God, that we would center on that which you have called us to which is a life like Jesus, which is the freedom that comes from knowing that this world has nothing for us, though this world has everything, that this world has all that we could ever want, yet this world has nothing that we need. God, let that truth resound in our hearts, that the world would lose its grip. God, that we would truly crucify the world and its passions, its desires. God, that it would mean nothing to us and simply your world your grace, your sacrifice, your spirit, your call, that those things would mean everything to us. God, we thank you so much for this.